Indeed, we wait this evening for the return of our glorious King, when we will get to sing anew his praises forevermore, the one who is worthy, the one who has come and given himself so that we might be redeemed. I would ask this evening that you turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth, chapter 3. As we consider tonight the profile of a redeemer, it's not often that I circle back to a text that we've already been through. We preached through the the entire chapter of uh, Ruth 3 the last time we were in the book of Ruth, but Tonight I want to to pause for just a moment and come back to the last verse of this chapter, Ruth chapter 3 verse 18, because in this verse we see something incredibly wonderful. We see in this verse what really the entire story of the book, what what the, the movement of the book has been bringing us toward, an act of redemption an act of bringing someone who is an outsider into the covenant community of faith. And here in verse 18 of chapter 3, that action is right around the corner. And we see in this verse what it looks like to, to put your confidence in a Redeemer and what that Redeemer himself should look like. And so tonight, as, as we read, we're going to pick up and, and just for some context, read back through uh, verse 14, but, but our main focus tonight is going to be singularly on verse 18 of chapter 3. So I would ask that if you are able this evening to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and we will read verses 14 through 18 of Ruth chapter 3. There we read, So she lay at his feet until morning. And she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Set still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. You may be seated. Let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer this evening. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us your word, that you have revealed to us what it looks like when people actually do keep your law, how your mercy and grace might be poured out on your people. Lord, I pray that as we consider tonight an an agent of your grace, as we consider Boaz and and his actions, his words, his resolve. I pray that our minds would be drawn toward our Redeemer, toward Christ. I pray that our hearts would be focused on 
the only right target of our affections. And that we as people who call ourselves by the name of Christ, that we would desire to respond in faith to the great redemption that has been extended toward us, that we would desire to set and wait, eagerly anticipating our Lord's return. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this endeavor that's before us this evening. Help me as I endeavor to preach this word. Help those gathered as they strive to listen and understand. And I pray that you would give us all the divine aid of your Holy Spirit this evening. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, as we have journeyed together through this precious little book, we have been witness to several remarkable things. We have been witness to grief giving way to hope as we start out with the loss of Elimelech and his sons, leaving Naomi and Ruth destitute and widowed. We have been witness to bitterness giving way to joy. Naomi proclaiming herself to be bitter and now as she understands as the the hope washes over her that God is not done with them yet. She starts to experience the joy that comes from trusting in the Lord. We've seen oppression ultimately giving way to redemption. In the fourth and final chapter we will see all these things consummated in one self-sacrificing act of redemption. But again, before we get into that, before we turn the page and and finish this story, I think it's appropriate to pause for just a moment here this evening and examine a profile of a redeemer. You see, this book bears Ruth's name. And indeed, it is an incredible testimony to God's grace poured out to this woman, this foreign pagan woman, this destitute, barren widow. It's an incredible story of how God would would, would see someone in that position and pour his love and affection out on this woman who has no right to claim it. But you see, in order for Ruth to experience God's grace, there must be an agent through whom that grace is dispensed. In order for her to experience redemption, there must be a redeemer. Redemption doesn't just happen out of thin air. It doesn't come from nowhere. There has to be someone to secure that redemption. And nowhere in this book has the picture of a redeemer come into sharper relief than here in verse 18 of chapter 3. In this one verse, all of Ruth and Naomi's hopes are shown to be bound up in the singular person of Boaz. What will this man do? Will he redeem is he going to bring it about they sit waiting helpless anticipating their deliverance trusting only in the word of their kinsman redeemer why should they hope what can they realistically think is going to happen to them these two destitute widows what well, what could they realistically hope for in returning to Bethlehem? Well, when they first returned to Bethlehem, the answer to those questions was nothing. They had no reason to hope. They had nothing they could put their hope in, no assurances that they could rely upon. 
They had no dreams of redemption. They were merely trying to survive together, to live, to find enough sustenance to continue their lives. But now, a Redeemer has entered into the story. Someone's come along who has offered them hope, who has met their needs. And that has made all the difference for these women. And so chapter 3 ends with Ruth and Naomi waiting and hoping. Before we turn to chapter 4, we're going to leave them dangling in suspense just a bit longer as we examine this profile of a Redeemer in whom they have placed their hopes. And in so doing, we will see, I believe, a picture emerge of our Redeemer for whom we are even now waiting as His people, eagerly anticipating His return as we just sang in the last verse of that hymn. The first thing that we see in this profile of a Redeemer is the character of a Redeemer. Boaz has demonstrated throughout this book that his character is unimpeachable. He is counted worthy by Naomi and Ruth to be their Redeemer. You see, in order for for them to trust themselves to Boaz, he has to prove himself trustworthy. Why should they trust in this man? Why should they hope in this man? What has he done to demonstrate that he is going to be a capable caregiver, a man that is equal to the task in front of him, the task of redeeming these impoverished widows and raising up a son for the fallen house of Elimelech? How do they know that they can hope in him? Well, because he has shown himself capable of offering such protection, of offering such provision, by allowing Ruth to glean in his fields, unharassed by his workers, by his direct command. He has showered them with food and with material provision. When Ruth went to him at night here earlier in chapter 3, he suppressed any sinful inclinations that he may have had, if he even had them. And he acted with integrity, ensuring that her reputation and her safety remained intact. This is very different from other men that we are familiar with in the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, when the opportunity for sin presented itself to Adam, the first man took the fruit. The first man took advantage of the opportunity that was presented to him, and his choice was made in broad daylight. Before sin had wormed its way through all of creation and affected every aspect of life. He made the choice with all of his mental faculties. He rejected God's command and he took the fruit. And later when God confronted him about it, what did he do? He cast the blame and dispersion on the woman. He blamed Eve. Well, here Boaz could have done the exact same thing. Only it would have been much easier for him to have done so. When Ruth came to him, it was night. They were alone. They lived in a time where men using and abusing women was commonplace. Again, if you need any evidence of that, just go back and and you don't have to read very far through the book of Judges before you see that taking place. Perhaps the serpent even whispered into Boaz's ear that night. You're alone. Take her. No one will ever know. And even if they do, even if she accuses you, you can blame her. She came to you. 
We know how temptation works. Like Adam, Boaz could have reached out and taken what was by no rights his. And like Adam, he could have blamed it on the woman with no ramifications from the society around him. But Boaz, thank the Lord, in this moment was not like Adam. Boaz was a redeemer. And so he acted in all these instances with integrity, with high character, thereby earning the rights to redemption. A redeemer must be someone of impeccable character. If Boaz was like all the other men of his day, then how could he be trusted to redeem? How could he sacrificially bring widowed women into his household in order to raise up an heir for another man? We'll see when we turn the page into chapter 4, that's the sticking point. When he brings the question of redemption up with a near relative. Oh, you want me to raise an heir up to, for another man and threaten my inheritance? No, I, I think I'll pass. You see, it takes a man of high character to do that. This is a sacred task. A job that God himself had articulated within his law. The way that the, the, the name of a household, that property would be perpetuated throughout the ages, throughout the tribes of Israel. When just such an instance, like the one that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in, arises. To redeem was to keep the law of God. And so therefore it was only something that a law keeper could do. Someone who valued and esteemed the law of God above their own personal ambitions. Above their own personal desires and inclinations. Boaz was just such a law keeper, a man of integrity. In this way, Boaz points us to our ultimate Redeemer. Jesus Christ, likewise, was required to have impeccable character in order to carry out the work of redemption. He was required to be a law keeper. And in fact, it's only by his keeping the law that he could provide for us the redemption that we needed. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Likewise, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Christ too was tempted. And unlike Adam, he rejected the temptation when it came to him. He held fast to his integrity. Satan came to him in the desert, in a ruined garden. When Satan tempted Adam, Adam had plenty. Adam had his belly full of whatever he could have wanted. Jesus was starving. He was famished. And yet he held fast when it would have been easy to give in and make those stones bread. It would have been easy to bow down and and acquire all the kingdoms of the earth that Satan offered him to accomplish his mission of redemption prematurely. These were not light temptations for our Savior, and yet he held fast. He maintained his character in the face of grueling temptation. And it's a good thing for us that he did. Because you see, God could not have placed our sin on Christ if he was not himself sinless. Now understand that in making this comparison, I am in no way claiming that Boaz was sinless. 
or that his redemption was anything like the redemption that Christ accomplished. See, Boaz redeemed several things. He redeemed Ruth's poverty. He redeemed her foreign nature. He redeemed her widowhood, her barrenness. He raised up an heir for Elimelech so the, the, the property would not pass out of the tribal allotment. But he could do nothing for Ruth's sins, for Ruth's offenses against God. He could afford no redemption. You see, Boaz was also a sinner. Though he was a man of high character, a man of integrity, he was not perfect. He needed a redemption of his own. He could only redeem insofar as his character and nature allowed him to. But Christ's character being as far superior to Boaz's character as eternity is as far superior to mortality. Christ is able to exact a far superior redemption for all of mankind. His redemption being infinite, whereas Boaz's was very limited, very specific to one person, one place, one time. Christ in His infinite capacity, in His infinite goodness, in His infinite sinlessness, in His infinite godliness, in His infinite Holiness was able to provide for us an unlimited redemption, covering all of our sins, leaving nothing not expunged. Far superior redemption. In order to perform the task of redemption, a perfect or a person must have the character of a redeemer. Boaz was a man of character. His character was equal to the task that was before him. Therefore, Naomi can tell Ruth with confidence in verse 18 to wait and see how the matter will turn out. They can have confidence in the character of Boaz because he has demonstrated that. We too can trust in our Redeemer. We can know and see His character. And we can have confidence because of the character of Christ, because of his sinless nature, because his obedience, his righteousness has been applied to us. The next thing we see in this verse, though, is the word of a redeemer. This is closely related to their character, because if the redeemer does not possess the necessary character, how can we trust their word? Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled. Well, how can she be so sure? How can she say such a thing? How can she know that? Well, because Boaz has said so himself. He told Ruth in verse 13 that he would ensure her redemption. He told her, there's another man that's closer than I, and I will go and talk to him. First thing tomorrow, I'm going to go talk to this man. I'm going to offer it to him. If he will not redeem you, I will. And he swears an oath. He gives them his word. that that, that he will personally see to it that one way or another the act of redemption will be performed for them. A redeemer can only be a redeemer if their word can be trusted. Boaz's word was good. But what about our redeemer? How can we trust that Christ will do as he says? How can we know that our redemption is safe within his Nail-pierced hands. How do we know that we're not being sold a bill of goods? Well, just as Boaz promised Ruth that he would secure her redemption, 
so too Christ has promised us that He would finish His work of redemption. In John chapter 14, on the night of the Last Supper, in the dark hours before He, like Boaz, would go into the city to secure redemption for His bride, Jesus comforted His disciples with these words. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have done what? I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, if I go to prepare this place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christ has given us His Word. He is promised. And being God... And since God cannot lie, we know that Christ cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author pointing his readers to the surety of their hope in Christ points them to what God himself has sworn, saying in verses 17 through 19, he says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What is our hope in? Our hope is in the promise of God. It is in the word of our Redeemer who has sworn that He will secure it for us. So we can have a strong consolation. So that when doubts assail our minds, when we wonder, is Jesus ever going to come back? Lord, it is getting bad here. When Satan reminds us of who we are and all the sin that has beset us throughout our lives, we can have a strong consolation. Not by going to the front of the Bibles, in front of our Bibles and looking at the date we were baptized on, not in asking the person that maybe even led us to the Lord what our response was to them, not necessarily in remembering even a a time and a place, but in remembering the Word of God, remembering what He has promised, what He has sworn by His own name, that He cannot change. He will bring it to pass that He who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. This is a strong consolation for us. And it's God's word. Not our experiences, not our feelings, but God's word. His word is good. And so like Ruth and Naomi, we need not worry about our redemption. Christ will bring it to pass. Third, in this profile of a redeemer, we see in verse 18 of Ruth 3, the resolve of a redeemer. A redeemer must be resolute. He must be. Because the work of redemption is so costly. In order to do the work of redemption, you must bind something to yourself that is of far lesser value. In order to redeem someone, you have to to be in a position of power relative to a position of weakness. And you, from your position of power, has to say to that person, 
person in the position of weakness. I'm going to take you and elevate you out of this position of weakness. I'm going to attach my name to yours, bind you to myself, and redeem you. Sometimes that can be costly. You assume the debts, the liabilities, the faults of the redeemed. And so then the redeemer must count the cost and they must resolve to bring about the redemption that depends upon them. This is the consolation that Naomi directs Ruth to rest in. She tells her in verse 18, the man will not rest. He will not rest until he has concluded the matter today. This act of redemption is going to cost Boaz. It's going to cost him at least financially. It's going to to require him to buy this land. It's costly. It's quite likely going to cost him socially as he marries a Moabitess. As he raises up an heir to another man. These things are costly. But he's resolved to see it through. In fact, it is his joy to make sure that it is accomplished. And so he hastens at first light into the city to accomplish his purpose. Christ likewise had to count the cost of the redemption that he would provide. On the night before his redemptive act on the cross, he prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And why did he pray that? Because he knew what it would cost him to see this through. But this was a decision that had already been made long before the incarnation in Bethlehem. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the apostle urges us to to have the same mind in us that Christ had in him. And what was that mind? What, what, What mind is this that Christ had in him? Well, it's a resolved mind. Listen to what he says. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, some versions will say, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus resolved to empty himself. The high king of heaven, the the one by whom nothing that is created was not created. He emptied himself and he condescended to mankind, becoming a man. Making himself of no reputation and being obedient to God, even to the point of death. And Paul even underscores this statement to show the depth of Christ's resolve. He says, even, even the death of the cross, showing us the extent of the sacrifice he made to secure redemption. You see, there's a reason that Jesus sweat drops of blood that night in Gethsemane. Like Boaz, he would go into the city the next day and redeem himself a wife. But Boaz had the much easier task. He merely had to buy back a parcel of land and produce an heir for Elimelech. Christ, on the other hand, he had to purify his bride. He had to take all of her filthiness upon himself, all of her sin upon himself. He had to bear the shame and reproach of all of her vile acts. And beyond that, 
he had to endure the infinite wrath of God poured out in a judgment that we could never bear. Christ knew that the cost of redemption was high. But he did not falter. He was resolved to see it through. So then, knowing the character of the Redeemer, the word of the Redeemer, and ultimately the resolve of the Redeemer, what should an appropriate response to a Redeemer be? What is the obligation of the redeemed? We have looked this evening so far at the Redeemer, the one carrying out the act of redemption. But the one who is being redeemed, what should their response be? Well, again, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi tells Ruth that her response is simple. She's to do one thing. Sit still. Wait. Sit still and wait. Why is Ruth to sit still and wait? Why isn't she to run into the city and say, this is my Redeemer. Please let Him redeem me. Let me offer something that will show that I need this redemption. Let me offer something to help this redemption along. Naomi says, you sit still and you wait until you see how the matter will turn out. See, there's nothing left for Ruth to do in this story. She is entirely now at the mercy of Boaz's character word, and resolve. All she can do is wait with eager expectation for her Redeemer to return and claim her as his bride so she can experience all the joys and all the blessings of redemption. Church, this too should be our response to our Redeemer. In a sense, we are even now sitting still and waiting Metaphorically speaking, you all are sitting relatively still in your church pews right now, but, but, but in a spiritual sense, we are waiting, we are anticipating, we are sitting still, patiently waiting for the end of the matter. Romans 8.23 says we are eagerly waiting for the redemption of the body, for the consummation of this redemption that we are looking forward to. This doesn't mean that we just sit back and twiddle our thumbs until the Lord returns. See, no, we we have a commission. We have work to do as we are waiting for the bridegroom to return and claim his bride. We're told what that looks like in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. There we're told, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying, godly, or, or denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Yes, we look forward for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Redeemer, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward in hope to that day when He comes and establishes His kingdom and makes everything glorious. We long for that day. 
But until that day comes, we are told that we should live soberly. That we should reject ungodliness. That we should reject worldly lusts. That we should be putting these things to death in us. That we should live righteously and godly in the present age. That we should be zealous for good works. So we wait with eager expectation, but it is an active waiting. It's an active hoping. But it's still waiting. You see, this isn't easy. It doesn't come natural to us. Because we want to be accomplishing something. We want to be doing something. When it comes to something important, we don't like to be at the mercy of someone else. I remember earlier this year when we were in the hospital waiting for Jude to make his arrival. I was at different times anxiously pacing around thinking, okay, what can I do? Can I push some buttons here and make this process speed up a little bit more? You know, do I need to go chase down a doctor and, uh, and, and get somebody to work here to, to accomplish this? What can I do? And ultimately the answer is, well, nothing. You've got to wait. It's not easy to wait. But waiting requires a great deal of faith, particularly when things are hard for us, when things aren't going the way that we, sh- we, we think they should be going. And yet we're told to wait, wait upon the Lord. The prophet Isaiah gave this same message to the people of Israel in the midst of their suffering, awaiting judgment. He says, and even the youths, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, even the youth shall be faint, shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Folks, this is what we are to do, to wait patiently. Upon the Lord. Why? Because we can't do anything about our redemption. We can't do anything to add or to take away from Christ's work. Like Ruth, we can't accomplish this for ourselves. Nobody that needs to be redeemed can accomplish their own redemption. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to be redeemed in the first place. So nothing we can do here and now will affect whether or not the debt that our sin has created, has been paid. That business was handled 2,000 years ago on the outskirts of Jerusalem by our Redeemer, stretched out on a cross between heaven and earth, paying the price for His bride. And so now, what does that bride do? We wait with eager anticipation, putting to death ungodliness, worldly lust, living soberly living righteously, pursuing the things of our groom. We wait like Ruth did on that restless day. I imagine her and Naomi sheltered in their small hut, waiting for the news that their Redeemer had accomplished His purpose and that He was on His way back to claim His bride, to welcome them into a mansion of glory, How eager she must have been. In futility, her mind perhaps trying to fill the agonizing minutes until she saw her Redeemer's frame occupy the horizon. She knew 
that day that her redemption was nigh. So too do we. Do we wait with the same eager anticipation that Ruth did on that day? As a bride does for her husband. Do we long for his glorious appearing? Or would we be just as satisfied if he continued to tarry day after day after day? Because we have other more pressing matters to attend to in our lives. We have other more interesting things to be about. Ruth would scoff at us. She would say to us, do you not understand your groom is coming? Get yourself ready. Redemption has been accomplished for you and he is coming back to claim his bride. Prepare for the great feast, the joyous celebration. All the petty cares of this world are nothing in light of that glorious hope that we have of our Redeemer's appearing. And so then let us continue to wait confident in the character, in the word, and the resolve of our Redeemer. He has spoken, and so he will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we can find this incredible hope of a redemption that has been secured for us. That our debt has been paid. That that which we could not accomplish for ourselves has been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, let this truth be ever before our minds. Let us act and speak and think in light of this truth as we wait for our Savior's glorious appearing. Lord, we know that things are not as they should be here and now. We know that there is much wickedness in the world. And scarier still, we know that there is much wickedness still within us. Lord, we long for the day when Christ will appear. When he will transport us to glory. Facing every stain curse in us. Lord, I pray that until that day comes that we would wait actively, putting sin to death in our lives and being faithful to accomplish all that Christ has called us to. It is in his most precious name that we ask these things tonight. Amen.